Good morning, good afternoon, and good night, wherever you're tuning in. We are Slava and Jonathan, bringing you the SideQuest Podcast, where we talk about character development, stories, and all things that are world-building. And we occasionally take side quests, because, frankly, that's how conversations work. Just as a reminder, this whole show is spoiler-heavy. So, sit back, tune in, and join us on this episode of SideQuest. Good morning, Slava. Good morning, Jonathan. How goes it in the tundry, wet, cloudy state that you're in? You're just saying words at this point. But uh, in my state, those things are facts. It's chillier than usual, and it's misting outside, and it's cloudy. Uh, well, it is raining outside, and cloudy, and colder than normal. But I know well, that you didn't. States. Yeah, but I know that you didn't look up the weather. So <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just like fertility. I have. Uh, nope, I know everything. You're not. You're not going to mausoleums. Apart from the terrible job that she has, I'm pretty much just like her. I don't know. You could have that job. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know. I don't know what you do when we're not recording a podcast. This is true. This is true. Anyway, you got any big plans this weekend? No, not really. I'm recording with you. Then I have to edit one of our episodes and pick up groceries for a meal. Classic. That's about it. Classic then, weekend. What about yourself? Uh, we are doing a launch this weekend, so I'm flying out to work tomorrow and need to do a little work today. It's rare that we work weekends, honestly. We haven't worked a weekend all year, which is really nice, but sometimes projects are due and you just got to do stuff. Sounds like such fun. Such is life. I finished our Super Bowl conference this week, so yesterday was my comp day because for three days I ran around with a video crew. Everybody kept asking me if I was okay, and I kept saying, I've done this for 10 years. This is probably my 10th conference. Um, Why were they really asking good. if you were okay? Because it was the first time I was at a conference this big in this particular industry. But a conference is a conference is a conference. You got your exhibits, you got your kiosks, you got your opening ceremonies and your breakout sessions, and a bunch of assholes walking around collecting swag. Yes. You know swag stands for... Uh... Stuff we all get. I didn't know that, but that makes sense. Yeah. Simple swag. Simple yep. stuff we all get. The only thing I like with swag is pens. I collect pens because that way when I get in the office, I always have pens. It's a very pragmatic swag hunting. I feel like there's no good companies because I run our events as well. There's no good companies for purchasing high quality swag. It's all chintzy garbage. And that's actually a complaint that I have for the events industry. It's like, how is no one... There's clearly a problem here, right? Mm -hmm. How is no one making better swag? Nevertheless, these people don't care about your pens and our business trips. They do not. So let's ask them a real question. If you had a warning label, what would yours say? Mine would say, mildly prone to rants. Inaccurate. Not mildly prone. Deeply ingrained. Could be rants incarnate, not to be confused with rats incarnate. Ooh. What about you? Mine, let's see. Mine would say, drawn to the ridiculous for the lulls uh, due to his addiction to laughing. Seems like you thought that one through. 
I spend a lot of time thinking in my own head. Yeah, that seems very specific also. It's it's a philosophy of life I live by. I'm the funniest person I know. It's one of my top values, laughing. I can dig it. Me too, but <laughs> that's because I enjoy my life and most people don't. Life is overall enjoyable. In the peaks and in the valleys, you can find things to be happy about. Yeah, for sure. And we can hold things in tension too, which uh, people don't, uh, I don't think we give enough credit to that. No, not at all. So. So what you, what say you we get into this um, plane ride? <laughs> We, uh, what do you say, we take off? But before we do, it's that time again, Unruly Adventurers. Make sure you never miss a podcast by smashing that subscribe button. You don't want to lose out on all the treasures that lie ahead. Tune in to SideQuest. Indeed. We will begin, good people, with a little overview, as we do with new books. I'm going to talk about the author, the book. I'm going to have Jonathan quickly go over the plot, and then we're going to get into it. So the, our author is Charles Michael Chuck Palinuk, who was born in February of 1962. He's French and Ukrainian. Before he started writing, he performed volunteer work for a homeless shelter and volunteered at the hospice as an escort, transporting terminally ill people and taking them to support group meetings. Palinuk began writing fiction in his mid-30s, so Jonathan's never too late. Using a minimalistic approach, his writings often include limited vocabulary and short sentences to mimic how an average person would tell a story. In an interview, he said he prefers to write in verbs instead of adjectives. The content of Palinuk's works has been described as nihilistic. He rejects this label, stating that he's still a romantic, and his works are mistakenly seen as such because they express ideas that many are uncomfortable with or do not believe in. Palinuk's writings often contain anti-consumeristic themes, and he describes his writing as transgressional, which means it pushes button and it's supposed to offend or get you to think, <laughs> which is very true of his first novel, which was Fight Club. Fight Club, the, the, so I've read Fight Club and I watched Fight Club and I read this book now. The tropes were the same. Between mm-hmm. Fight Club and and this book, uh, yep. there's a there's a servant level society that's the unsung heroes per se a little bit, and they're mistreated by society and it's uh, materialism is their their downfall and they're fighting against it and there's kind of like a secret background series of things going on, so the tropes seemed very much the same. He writes them well, but they just seem like the same tropes displayed differently it's like mexican food right like you can get a taco or you can get a burrito or you can get flautas but it's the same four ingredients just delivered to you differently differently i wonder if this is a coincidence because we both know fight club we now are familiar with this book and maybe those two overlap in themes and tropes i haven't read anything else by him but i think what you said is absolutely true both are enjoyable and he writes these tropes well oh yeah I read a blogger said something like uh, he is has a panache for repetition or something like that, or an addiction to pe- repetition. And what you responded to that with when I texted you that, you said that if it's done well, it can make a world uh, feel very comfortable. The point that I was getting at in my text was that when you 
bring people something they're familiar with, they have an attachment to it because they know what they're going to get. And so by doing that, when he uses the same tropes, people, and he had success with his first book, as you mentioned a minute ago, people know what they're going to get and they're happy about it and they expect to be fulfilled along the same lines. And Palinuk can, like he, like I said, he does a good job at it, but it is the same tropes is how it felt. That's fair. Different, you know, garnish flavoring, but for the most part, the same tropes. All right. Well, let's, let's get into a little bit of the, the garnishes here. Survivor is a satirical novel about a guy named Tender Branson, a member and last <clears throat> survivor of the Cretus Church, which is a death cult. The chapters and pages are numbered backward in the book, beginning with chapter 47 and ending with chapter 1. The members of this Cretus cult early on learn how to be servants for the human race, and most of them are butlers or maids. And they have a tremendous fear of human pleasures. They await a sign from a higher power to tell them to deliver themselves unto God, which means they must commit suicide. As the story unfolds, themes of consumerism, media manipulation, and emptiness of modern life are revealed. The novel is a dark but thought-provoking exploration of the absurdity of contemporary culture. I agree with that last statement 100%. The genre is fiction, horror, slash satire, and, as Palinuk said, its writing is transgressional. Palinuk has said that his writing style has been influenced by authors such as the minimalist Tom Spanbauer, Brett Easton Ellis of American Psycho fame, and philosophers like Michael Foucault, Frederick Nietzsche, and Albert Camus. It will take a little bit, but I think it's worth mentioning each philosopher's philosophy. So Foucault theory primarily addresses the relationship between power and knowledge and how societal institutions use them for control. Nietzsche, Jonathan, you're a, you're a Nietzsche guy, right? Tell the audience what he loves. Well, Nietzsche's famous for declaring that God is dead. It's, it's pretty misquoted as well. It is something he said, but he was trying to make a different point than liberating people who feel oppressed by religion. We don't have to go down this trail because it's kind of a big topic, and I frankly haven't read Nietzsche in a long time, so um, I feel a little rusty. I feel a lot rusty. I'll just I'll just call it fair enough. The point I want to make for the audience is Nietzsche work that covers cultural criticism, focusing on aphorism and irony. Aphorism is the very terse language. Um, You want to get something across and very concise, uh, laconic, or memorable expression kind of way. He critiques truth, favoring perspectivism. That's what he, when he's critiquing religion and morality, specifically Christian morality, and he emphasizes the human subject as an expression of competing wills. So his Ubermensch concept, which was misused by the Nazis, that's a side quest for a different, completely different podcast even. The ultimate goal of humanity is to become this ubermensch, this overman, and we only get there by looking within ourselves and refining our ideals as we move into the godless utopia. Camus, his views contributed to the philosophy known as absurdism, a theory that says the universe is irrational and meaningless. People who uh, subscribe to this believe that trying to find meaning leads people to conflict within the world. And I think you, Jonathan, can agree, and many in the audience who have read him, Palinuk, that is, you can see these things coming out 
as he critiques consumerism and celebrity culture, all that stuff, you could see how a lot of this comes out in his writings, at least I can. So if I was to pick a non-religion philosophy to follow, it would be absurdism. I've I've read some yeah. of Camus' stuff, and I think <laughs> I think if I was to pick anything, it'd be that. Because I feel, to use a D&D phrase, I feel chaotic neutral, where I just enjoy having absurdism in my life and, and ridiculousness and fun. I've actually put some thought into this. This is the one that I would pick if I wasn't That's religious. Fair. I am partial to absurdism because there's a lot of things that people worship, if you will, that I find irreverent, irrelevant, and I am irreverent towards them. Yeah. Because of the absurdity of the, the, the thing, or at least the absurdity of the attachment to the thing. Well, absurdism so, lets you be carte blanche in your dissecting, attacking, and unraveling of other people's meaning. I'm sure it wasn't necessarily meant like that to start, but that's how I would have used it should I yeah. decide that religion is no longer for me, which I doubt will happen. So Right. Same. And I haven't thought about it, but now that you've put it into my head... It's my backup beliefs. I would happily join the church small c of absurdism if I should ever, uh, you know, become well, an apostate. speaking of cults, uh, if anyone's interested in joining our cult, we are going to be Absurdianity. That's our new religion. Feel free to join us. There will be no death. Uh, there will be no murder-suicide pact. It will simply be Chaos Reigns. That's our slogan. But there will be uh, there will be tithes and offerings because <laughs> uh, that's just how it works, guys. <laughs> Slava's looking for a boat and he can't afford it himself <laughs> right now, so he's just looking for you to help him with that. Yeah. But don't worry, it's an absurd boat. It's got It'll, a rubber ducky on the front. It's no, it's just a 170 foot rubber ducky. That's it. It's just a with the large paddles. Yeah, made it's out absurd. of uh, acrylic and. Uh, foam i love it because no one wants to take care of the earth if you're absurdist absurdianist this is true all right one last point about this because i think it's important kudos to the audience who haven't fast forwarded through this stuck around the literary movement that palinchuk is part of is minimalism postmodernism minimalistic postmodernism so minimalism for those who do not know in postmodern literature can focus on a surface description where readers are expected to take an active role in creating the story. It doesn't give you a lot of details, and you're supposed to use your imagination, use the old big brain to fill in the gaps, or to either be left in the dark, if you're comfortable with that, or create the story itself, meaning you create a backstory for Tender, or you fill in the gaps where details about Tender's life are omitted. Generally, these short stories, or longer stories, are a slice of life type of stories, which is kind of like Survivor. Literary minimalism refers to writing with a small, specific focus, usually devoid of flowery, excessively descriptive language. Aha, Palinuk doesn't like adjectives. And backstory. We don't get a lot of backstory here. Literary minimalism prioritizes brevity, allowing the reader to make up for the lack of verbiage or details with their own imagination. That was very prevalent to me in Survivor. Based on the stuff I read about Palinuk and the interviews I watched, it seems that's his uh, shtick, and that's fine. I'm totally okay with having a weird, absurd, if you will, book that kind of leaves a lot of things hanging and 
I can either fill in the story or just enjoy it as it is for the absurdity that either the author was trying to critique or point out. Here's an absurd piece of art. I'll be like, okay, cool. I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. So that's a little bit about Palinuk, the book, and the genre. And I'm going to give it to my buddy Jonathan here, and he can talk about the plot. So the plot starts off, oh, and this is something that I missed, but Slava told me about it at the beginning, that the book starts backwards, basically, with the last chapter and the last page, and then moves forward in time, which makes more sense as you go through the narrative. But um, you don't get that when you're doing audiobook. There's just pieces of storytelling. You, you're removing one of the elements of storytelling by removing the physical copy of the book. However, you're adding things because it's audio. So like I've seen some people with audiobooks do that where they've added things because it's audio and maybe the author reads it and he gives minor commentary on it. This is less about narratives though or less about fiction specifically. But that's just a side note where you, you remove, speci- well, in particular this book in particular, you remove one of the elements of storytelling that Palinuk created, which is the book starts backwards and moves forward. Anyway, into the plot. So, novel opens up with Tender Branson, who's a member of this Cretish church cult who has hijacked an airliner. We find out really quickly into it that he hasn't hijacked the plane the way that we're familiar with it. He's actually released all the passengers and got the plane to take off again with the pilot, and then the pilot jumps out. So he's kindly taken over the, the plane? Well, he's a kindly hijacker. Yeah, he's, oh boy, kindly hijacker. Reference back to when Spencer told us about the kindly killer. That's what that was for folks who are familiar with uh, Spencer. Anyway... Quetalists, which is this place that he was raised, are raised up to be nobody's servants to strangers, and they're paid in cash to send back to the mothership that is the Cretish cult so that they can one by one buy acre and acre and then tell everyone about being Cretish. Cretalist. Cretist? Cretish? Cretalist? Uh, Whatever. To to sing Creed altogether. Mm. Um, This leads Tender to... Try to find some sort of, I guess, joy in his life or something to do where he ends up putting up his phone number in these public phone booths as the suicide hotline and then encourages people to kill themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. I I laughed when I read it and I'm laughing now. Yeah. So he encourages people to kill themselves when they call the suicide hotline when they're expecting him to help them live because this is part of something that's deeply ingrained in who he was brought up to be. Like, eventually you finally commit suicide. That's just part of, like, what your life is going to entail. Well, he starts to go meander around graveyards and mausoleums. Mausoleums are places where you put your dead. They're more ornate than just burying your kid in the ground. And he meets one of the sisters of the people that he encouraged to kill himself named Fertility. And she ends up having some sort of special power, and her brother had the special power as well, which we'll learn more about as the plot goes on. But basically, they have these premonitions about the future that end up becoming correct. So, there's that. It's revealed because Cretalist survivors are given caseworkers that slowly the Cretalists are dying. The perception is that they're committing suicide, but his caseworker determines that that seems a little bit obscure because 
some of the killings have inconsistent facts, like someone with a right-handed use of their body ends up killing themselves with a left-handed gun. That's not right, but you know what I mean? Like, somebody who's right-handed killed themselves with their left hand based on the way that the body was found and things like that, where it starts to it starts to come out that people are killing these church members, these, these creedless church members. It happens to be that Branson is the remaining survivor, that's where we get the book title, of this church cult because of whoever's killing them. And there's a publishing house that's been waiting for this to happen, and they cite all these different historical moments where people have done something similar to this. And so they're like, we have a story ready for everything because he was asking, well, how did you know this was going to happen? And they're like, we've got a story for everything. And then they started exploiting him for the rights to all creedalist things, movies, book deals, a prayer book that he has a long commentary on that he's like, I want you to go on record that I didn't say that this prayer book should come out, nor did I write it. It's just been commoditized. Then it's revealed that the cult's dark secret and mass suicide was due to an FBI intervention after cult members called police. So that's kind of where this all started. A series of events and encounters happen with Branson's twin brother, who happens to be the um, person who's going around killing everyone. And his publicist comes to him and says, hey, I need you to commit a miracle, basically. And uh, we're going to be on this spot between these two different TV programs. And so you've got you've to com- get a miracle going. He runs through a list of things with fertility. Then he ends up at the Super Bowl halftime show where he has an arranged marriage. Things take a, a weird turn. Then the police try and arrest him and he escapes with fertility. And then his brother, him, and Fertility are on the run. Things come to a head where he has to kill his brother. And then he has some very awkward sex with Fertility. And in the morning, she tells him she's pregnant. And she tries to escape to Australia. And then he reads her journal. And her journal talks about a plane being hijacked that crashes in the outback. So he goes to try to save her as the narrative circles back to the beginning of the book. And Tender realizes that he's the hijacker of the plane that crashes in Australia. And the book ends on an ambiguous note, and it's unclear whether or not Tender survives. That is the plot in summary. Yes, sir. Very well done. I think this was a really good book. I'll say it. I'll front load it and say I liked it. The biting sarcasm, and I'm stealing this from a blog, strangely piercing look at the world was was really cool. It pointed out... The absurdity of celebrity culture, of celebrity religious leaders, of faux Christianity, this nonsense, speak your truth into the universe and say a few prayers and declare your health, wealth, and well-being. And the prayers, specifically the prayers, is what got me thinking about this in his prayer book, are such nonsense garbage. And they are widely believed by Christians that even we know, and gobbled up by non-Christians because they think that this pseudo-spirituality is somehow yeah. the real thing. But the problem is there's no there's no feedback loop. There's no, hey, I did this. What was the outcome? And then, like, if I do it again, what's the outcome? And that's what, that's what Chuck is, I think, pointing out. All of them are gobbling this stuff up, and then once they're done— they want more, so they gobble the next thing on the plate, and the next thing, and the next thing that's fed to them. But d- despite all those things, despite all those things, I think the book 
is not hopeless. I didn't feel like, oh, this is some sort of existential no, you know, no, 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 dread or anything. It's still a fun story. The fact that it ends on an ambiguous note, you don't know if the plane actually crashed or he somehow landed it or it landed safely. Not that autopilot helps, you know, lands the plane for you, but it's still ambiguous enough where you're like, ha, that's a cool story. I can dig it. I think that he did a good job of luring me into the story, too. It starts out with a hijacking and the guy who hijacked it talking into a black box. And the way he wrote the story, which is nonlinear, starts at the end of the story, tells events leading up to where we're at, goes back in time to give you back some background information that ends back on him in the, in the cockpit. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, that was pretty unique. I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the fact that the book started backwards and then kind of full circle where the character realizes, oh, maybe the premonition was about me. Oh, I'm the hijacker. And it's kind of this this realization moment, right? Where he's, I think he's confronted with the fact that sometimes premonitions can be self-fulfilling prophecies. And because of that, he, well, he or we, need to confront we do get to be the captains of our own ship who said that that's like a famous phrase you're the captain of your own ship do you remember i remember you saying it a couple times and i never bothered to ask you where you got it it's a famous phrase and i can't i want to say it's Moby dick just because he's captain of a ship but anyway you're the captain of your own ship and so even if you have some sort of premonition or or idea of where the future goes like without your active will which we see in tender it doesn't happen Right, like there are some things that happen in the world, but your story's not one of them. Michael Josephine, you are the captain of your own ship. Don't let anyone else take the wheel. I think I just want to credit it to Abraham Lincoln instead. Abraham Lincoln, writer of Moby Dick. Let's go. That's what we do on the internet anyway. What you just said, I partly agree, I partly disagree. And let me well, say what I disagree with, and you can tell me if I understood what you just said. So I agree that you are ultimately the captain of your ship. You you are given your life and you are given instructions for that life, uh, whether it's the uh, revelation of God, whether it's natural, immaterial things that are ingrained in you, what you know in your heart of hearts is right and wrong, what your parents teach you, what your church teaches you, what your school teaches you, all those things, you are given enough tools in this life to make it a good life, and it's your obligation to uh, live out. Self-fulfilling prophecy, I think it makes sense for this story. What I didn't understand... Maybe I should ask you what you meant before I disagree with you, is what did you mean when you said, despite your inactions, I I missed that part. You said something about whether or not you're taking actions, stuff is happening to you. What did you mean by that? Yeah, that's a fair question. I imagine that the audience has something similar. So let's take Tender here. Okay, so he gets his premonition in her journal. She's got a track record of being accurate. And, oh, no, she's going to Australia. There's a plane that's going to be hijacked, da 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 whatever. Okay, great. But if he did nothing, the plane doesn't get hijacked. Yeah, okay. Okay? So that's that's the first part because there's kind of layers to this, right? He could try and stop her in a different way, and the plane still doesn't get hijacked, at least in this instance, because he's the hijacker. Or third option, which is what he takes, he hijacks the plane. Okay. Then there are other instances like, um, I'm going to have trouble with this one. Um, there are other instances that happen in the world that people believe are fated, if you will, be that hurricanes, earthquakes, etc., whatever. Those things will continue to happen regardless, but premonitions where 
humans are involved and the will is involved, unless someone takes action, it doesn't take place. Right? Like, that's just not a thing. Is that a little more clear? Yeah, it's a little bit more clear. You still disagree? I don't know. I'll, I'll dog ear that part of our conversation. I agree with um, everything you said up until that, and I'm not going to say I disagree. I just need more time to think about it. Is that fair? Sure. It's fair. Yeah. I want to dive in and how the media is portrayed. The media is portrayed as this narcissistic, all-consuming, greedy monster. And the agent, and I like the fact that characters are named the agent, the caseworker, whatever. Mm-hmm. So the agent plays a significant role in shaping Tender's life. And the media within this world plays a significant role in shaping the events of the other characters in the story. Because fertility is involved, brothers involved, caseworkers involved. Everybody is affected because of the way media shapes the world around them and the way media has exploited Tender also as a tool for manipulating the world. Yep. In this world, nothing is as it seems. There's only the dog and pony show. The book, I think, exposes the media's kind of manipulation sensationalism, right? It reveals the public's inclination towards, I'm going to use the word propensity. People just love sensationalism and at any cost, whatever it is. <laughs> whether it's uh, the fact that all of a sudden at the recording of this podcast, uh Will Smith's wife has revealed to the news that actually, no, they haven't been together for seven years. So when the infamous slap happened, and those who don't know, Will Smith slapped Clarice Rock at the Oscars uh, for making a joke about his wife. So when that slap happened, he got all obsessive and protective and lost his mind on national television. They weren't even together. Somebody's publicists said, this should come out. We'll get a lot of clicks and you'll be trending. That's my assessment of it. And I think Chuck picks up on that really well in the book. He describes that type of stuff really well. Because it happens in America every freaking day. Yeah. Do you remember back when uh, Kanye West interrupted Taylor Swift at the um, VMAs? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I'm going to let you finish. We know someone in New York who worked at a publicist company. That person told me years later, like, oh, yeah, that was a stunt that we put on. Yep. So I believe it. I'm not even not yeah. even shocked. Yeah. Not even shocked. So those are some of my observations about the in-world and our real-world media manipulation. Well, the same, thing, the same thing happens in media for reality TV. I've worked on some reality TV shows, and they have specific producers who meet with the people who are the quote-unquote actors, the talent. And they hear where they're at, they hear their story, and then they guide them and coach them to get what they want out of them to make a better story. Which is like, is that ethical? Is it unethical? I don't know. There, It depends on which reality TV show, because I haven't worked on all of them. Because some of them it's just kind of made up. But some of them it's like, let me coax out the information and then like let's exacerbate it. Let's blow it out of the water a little bigger than you actually explained it to make it better for reality tv right so this is just media media needs clicks and if it doesn't get clicks it does it dies Um, there's a story that i read one time uh about a superhero that only maintains its power because of the media presence and people fear him but when people start to realize that he's actually vulnerable he loses the power 
only by creating the press that things have been happening is he able to maintain the power and then he loses it. So that's a real clear notation of of media and where media is at. Yeah. No, and I get it because I was at our Super Bowl, right? And I was part of the digital media team. We were creating videos, YouTube shorts, YouTube longs, all the stuff. And we had to set the stage. So we talked with some winners. There's some people who won awards. I went around and I prepped them and I told them, this is going to be the question we're going to ask you. This is what we're looking for in your answer. Answer it as honestly and as truthfully and make it your own. But we want to talk about this thing via this question. And we're going to highlight you that you won an award for doing what you did. So I get it. Like, I just I just did this this, you know, this past week. <laughs> yeah. On a micro scale. Yeah. What do you think about the Cretish death cult? What stood out to you? Well, so it reading the book got me thinking about cults. And I've joked on here before that I've thought about starting a cult, which is like kitschy true. Never actually put like planning into it because it's it's something that sounds so outrageous that's like, oh yeah, could do this thing. And then I went down kind of a rabbit hole and discovered that there's three different main types of cults. There's religious cults, evidenced in the book. There's political cults, which we see everywhere around us uh, in today's culture, which is obnoxious. And there's self-improvement cults. When when you can tie some of these in together, you, you get some weird flavors. I don't think that that happened with the Cretish cult necessarily. But the fact that they were like, we're going to buy land by land. But what we need then is a bunch of worker bees. I mean, that's smart. It makes sense from a business perspective. Like, how do you gain capital? Make these people believe what you're telling them. Once they believe it and they go out and start doing it, boom, cash money. Great. What seemed unbelievable to me, though, was later the brother comes back and then starts murdering their survivors because I'm just like, what's his motivation? Right? Like Revenge. I think it's revenge. I mean, it'd be, yeah. A misguided revenge. Yeah, I want I want some more clarity, though, you know, on, on, like, does he really believe that? Anyway, this is getting away from the question. Well, you, didn't, you don't get any clarity. We already discussed the kind of type of genre this is. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, I get it, and I get it, yeah. What stood out to me, the method of making the outside world seem so scary and unappealing, right? And then at the same huh. time... When he visits the visits, when he works for these yuppies that treat him like garbage and don't understand basic etiquette and act like complete asshats, it proves some of the claims of the cult, right? In some misguided, maybe a little bit diluted way. But the lengths that this cult went to, that's what stood out to me because it reminded me of a few churches I visited as a kid because my mom went on the spiritual journey what I call it that. That's a very nice way of saying it. So we visited some fundamentalist churches. We visited a couple of Jehovah's Witness and some Mormon uh, temples. And so I got a flavor of all of that. And in one fundamentalist church, somebody came up to me. I'm like freaking 11 years old. And they're like, so you, I, um, uh, you go to a public school, right? And I'm like, uh, yeah, my city, my city middle school. And they're like, wow, so how do you deal with it? How do you deal with all the... And they listed off some stuff, which I forget because I was 11. And I was like, 
I don't know what you're talking about. I'm just, I, I'm, I'm learning algebra, <laughs> like, or whatever the hell I was learning in fifth grade, you know, pre-algebra. Like, leave me alone. I just remember, like, the man's ferocity. He was so entrenched in, not entrenched, but yeah, he was entrenched in his beliefs probably, but he was so, like, moved, for lack of a better term, by the fact that this kid is going to public school. And he, I just remember him being so tensed by it. And I imagine that's what Tender feels when he encounters stuff that he's been told is from Satan himself. This is from the pits of hell. Mm-hmm. And so that stood out to me as I read about all the stuff and all the sex stuff with the cult, how they viewed sex as just this horrible abomination of a thing, how that translated into so much damage. And I think kind of full circle, half circle, to why Adam is murdering all the creedists, it's kind of that serial killer trope where my aunt abused me, my mom abused me, so I'm going to go strangle women, right? I think it's kind of a serial killer tropey thing here where it's not just revenge for his wife and kid who die because he could have killed the elders, but hey, right. he can't because they all committed mass suicide because, surprise, he's the one who called the FBI or the police. So now the only way he could exact revenge in some way Send them all to God is by murdering them. I think it's just a, a messed up man with a lot going on in his brain that he can't process. So you think it's survivor guilt manifesting through revenge? I think it's a, a lot. I think it's survival guilt manifesting through revenge. I think it's serial killer trope thing in media, movie stories, mm. where some something has happened and now I'm going to kill all everybody of the sex color of this particular flavor of politics, whatever the hell it is now, it's, it's his church. He's like, I'm going to send you all to God. And in the end, he actually commits suicide via his brother's hand. He never lets go of the belief, and that's even said in the book. Ultimately, he lived according to the church's teachings. After he killed everybody, he committed suicide by somebody else's hand. So instead of death by cop, it was death by uh, tender. Yeah. yeah. So... Okay, this there, we had a question in a previous episode about integrity, and I'm curious if you feel like he was integritous because he, he died by his beliefs. He acted them out, and he died by them. Well, good point. Well, let's return to that question. It requires a little bit of background. So we talked about integrity, something that means wholeness, uh, that you wholly live out your beliefs. And you mentioned Hitler, and I had some time to think about it. I'm like, well, the problem there is a categorical one. There, there are objective truths that trump that. Let me just interject one thing real quick as a reminder for anyone who might not have listened to the episode or it's been a while. I posited the idea that integrity was amoral, which means it's neither moral good or moral evil. It's just in the middle based on the definition that was given, which is what Slava just said of like your beliefs and your actions are aligned. Okay. Just wanted to give that clarification. Yeah, to yeah no, that's folks. good. That's that's good. Thank you. That's very good. I think when you say a not Hitler, you know, the opposite of Hitler, to have integrity in that situation is to fully live out all the things that are not Hitler. And Hitler was also integritous because he fully believed in his worldview, which was Aryan superiority and the elimination of lesser races. Yeah, and the Ubermensch that you mentioned earlier incorrectly understood. So he was living in deception, which is a different conversation, but like within his deception, he was integritous. Sure. But I think 
you can't separate that. That's why I said what I said in the previous episode. We've got to play semantic games. Because at mm-hmm. the end of the day, we'll, there's arguments for both. It's a grayish area. And what's missing from this conversation is the context of this was said in a theological lecture. So here's the thing. I was raised to believe integrity is moral good. I get it. And I and I get you. Yeah, I think this is new information because you didn't mention it last time of it being met, like this thing ha- being mentioned in a sermon or theological. No, I did. It was a it was a seminary lecture. I, I I said that, but maybe you misheard. That's okay. Doesn't matter. It's all on me. It's all on me. <laughs> Go back and listen to it. I said it was a seminary uh, lecture. No, I'm not going to. <laughs> um. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so I was raised similarly. Like integrity is moral good, but based on how I've expanded the worldview that I hold of like philosophy and and things like that it's like i'm not sure that integrity is a standalone concept standalone concept outside of context objective you know an, an objective concept i think objectively integrity as a word and a concept is amoral anyway we don't have to find an answer to this question i thought it was just interesting because you brought up tender's brother and how he died believing what he believed and it seemed like a relevant side quest if you will no, it's very relevant. I, I think it's I think it's a very interesting conversation that I would not mind having offline because we don't need to bore the people with this. I am still convinced of my position. Sure. But I also am c- convinced that I understand your position. I think it's a bit of a semantics game when we g- get down to it, but it's a game that I'm willing to play because I think it's a fascinating discussion. <laughs> just like I said, just like I said in the previous episode. This is why I would be an absurdist. This is like a very oh, this classic. Is it. This is exactly it. This yeah, is a absolutely. classic example of like, well, you said this and you simply play out other people's, it's not a presupposition, it's belief. You you play out other people's statements and you go, well, da 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 da. So. Well, here's the thing. Well, let's unpack it just for a couple of minutes and then we'll see where we, we go next. It'll be a longer episode. Fast forward audience or, or listen to it. We love you either way. So here's what Texas University of Texas says on their blog post called Ethics Unwrapped. Is this the philosophy department in University of Texas? I would imagine so. Well, it's, it's not going to be their math department. <laughs> <laughs> what if it's their engineering department? The integrity of this bridge. Yeah, no, no. Integrity is an indispensable moral virtue that includes acting with honesty, fairness, and decency. So that's a, that's a different definition than the Bible professor gave. The Bible professor said it's wholeness within your worldview. Texas ADU says integrity is acting with honesty, fairness, and decency. Here we are in the semantics games again. This, this is what I was getting at. What's your category? What are, what are the categories we're working with? What are the definitions we're working with, right? Here's, the, here's where it gets interesting. Here's another part of the thing. Acting with integrity means understanding, accepting, and choosing to live in accordance with one's principles. Now, that's your definition. So, yes. By that definition, frickin' Hitler was a very integral person, right? But then they go on to say, which include honesty, fairness, and decency. A person in of integrity will consistently demonstrate good character by in, being free of corruption and hypocrisy. So that's already a little bit of different. That, that's a that's a multi-layer definition that it's also counterintuitive to itself by the different layers. Expand on that. I like it. Read the second part again. I'm gonna read the whole thing. Acting with integrity means understanding, accepting, and choosing to live in accordance with one's principles, which will include honesty, fairness, and decency. Pause. These are different premises. These are different premises. So premise one is one's own principles. Second premise, 
they're proposing that these principles are principles to live by. Premise three, read premise three again. The final premise is a person of integrity will consistently demonstrate good character by being free of corruption and hypocrisy. So good character is defined as being free from hypocrisy and what was the other thing? Corruption. Corruption. Right. Well, okay. What does corruption mean? Right. Like, and so, and this is the philosophical game that you're, that you're inferring is you need to define your terms. Absolutely. And so this is why I've brought this question up twice now, where it's relevant to the character in the book. And then I proposed the first time in the previous episode where it's like, well, based on your definition of to be integritous is to be consistent with your beliefs in action. It's like, if that's the definition, then like, and the thing is, I, I'm a Jew. I don't believe that what Hitler did was good. It's just amoral. Like the, the word integrity is amoral. So by the one definition that you gave that one time, now you, you gave me new information this time because this is something die on this hill that it was in the context of a sermon or whatever. A lecture. Uh, but, and maybe you said lecture, but that doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot for a guy who researches everything. Um, which you got to give me that point. Because uh, <laughs> this is just a points game at this at this juncture. Although I can ask the question of like, is integrity amoral? I still think that there's probably strong evidence for integrity being what I was raised with, which is like integrity is moral good. Yeah. Well, they, they finished this... It's, when I say blog post, it's like... A lecture? A f- no, it's not a lecture. <laughs> right. When I say blog post, it's an interactive kind of... You watch a couple of videos, and then there's like... So uh, lectures? Cut lines. Cut lines. <laughs> yes. Yes. But they're not lectures. No. Um, they're like minute-long videos. This is how they finish it. Integrity is revealed when people act virtuously regardless of circumstances or consequences. This often requires moral courage. Indeed, they say... Integrity is the critical connection between ethics and moral action. And they cite C.S. Lewis saying, Integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is looking. I would disagree with Lewis. I don't think that's integrity. Integrity is foundational moral virtue and the bedrock upon which good character is built. But here's the thing all of these things are just statements, and none of them right. are backed. Right. Oh, no, absolutely. And none absolutely. of them are backed by something, right? Like, no. They're, no. They're all backed by each other. So this is, this is epistemology 101, right? Like, Where's where does knowledge begin? And so, like, I'm asking for where does integrity begin? Like, when is it first used? Right? Like, if you want to use a biblical term, the law of first mention. Right? Where was integrity first used? What culture? What language? What was it being talked about? Like, that would be at least a start to the epistemology that is integrity. We don't have to do that because this is not a historical epistemological conversation. Or sorry, no, the conversation is um, a podcast. Let's get back into okay. the book. Um, yeah. Well, I'll tell you this. South Carolina, I think it's South Carolina. Oh, my God. University. SCEDU. Whatever SCEDU is. Let me turn right? my camera off. They believe what you believe. On their blog post, uh, the answers are morals and integrity the same. They say, no, even if a person possesses integrity, it does not mean that they also possess moral good characters. So... There you have it. Right. Like, so one on both sides colleges. of the fences. Yeah, right. the colleges are opposed to each other. The side quest is over. But interesting discussion nonetheless. I love this kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, let's bring it back to the improvements of the book. How about that? And then we'll, we'll try and, pun intended, land this plane. So what you're saying is look at the improvements, and then when 
surprise, surprise, boys and girls, we're going to have a guest on for the second part of this, and we can discuss some of the themes, questions, maybe some more yeah. of the plot points. That well, and she's fair? a diehard reader, too, you said. She's a diehard well, reader of Palinuk. So yes. We'll get a lot so, more from her. So let's, uh, let's do what you just said. I like it. So the, phrase, or the question that we've started thinking about is, what makes a five-star book? Right? So this is yeah. a good book. Like, hands down, very good book. However, there are elements, and this is mildly subjective, but there are elements that prevent it from reaching its five-star status. So the question is, what are the improvements that would bring it to that five-star status? Those are the questions here. Sometimes they're drastic, like the city in the city, where you need to do another three rewrites and really hone in your plot and your subplots to make it even a three-star book. Not gonna. I'm dying on this hill. It's fine. That's all good. So for me, there's three things that stood out to me as worthy of revision. If the caseworker is dead, yes, I get it. We don't know that she's dead until chapter later on in the book. But when we start the story at the end of the book, caseworker is dead, and he won't repeat her name to the black box to protect her, but she's dead. And if the cops and the BI are involved, his caseworker, whose murder they're investigating, is already known. So I thought that was kind of a yeah. plot hole that I'm like, ah, whatever. I wanted more convos with suicide victims. Dark humor is my forte. And to expand upon how tender is, in a very dark way, fulfilling some holes in his otherwise very dim lo- life, a few of the more of the suicide victims would have been interesting. Like, just even if it was one, but it was such a stark example of where tender is, you know, mentally and emotionally would have been good. I think if I was to choose, it would have been like three or four more vignettes, maybe even half a paragraph of conversations with victims. And I wanted to know more about fertility's powers, how she got him, where she got him. It doesn't have to be so much detail that it ruins the minimalistic writing. Right. You don't need a you don't need a hard magic system, but your mom was a you know, dabbled in the occult and she, you know, something, something, whatever. Just a little little sentence or two, right? Like, cause that was one of the questions I wrote down too, is like, well, where did she get her powers? And we, we have similar um improvements this time around, because I, I was like, well, why did the police never investigate who the suicide victims were talking to on the phone? Like, Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, but yeah, I thought about that too. They, if they're all calling the same, it's like, they can look it up. It's not the actual suicide hotline number. So they're all talking to the same guy? Hmm, seems weird. And then why did he prevent himself from a full share on the black box when it's, you know, he's going to die anyway, so... This is about getting his story out there, so I thought. But I just realized while you were saying something that he could have protected her on the black box because the media won't know who she is. Yeah. It's not stated, and so I think that the the improvement is still semi-valid. I think it's it's less plot-holy and semi-valid because he was in the media. Those are the improvements we thought that this book had had. Yep. And the scale, I'm going to go with mine first. So the scale that we have is story, plot, characters, and world. A scale of 1 to 5. 5 is the best. 1 is the worst. Story, plot is 4.5. Characters is a 4. And the world is a 4. And ding, ding, ding. We are in unanimous 
agreement. This one's unanimous. This one's unanimous. It's a first. It's a first. Uh, Because I don't think that we've agreed uh, one for one on on both of them before. But the story was unique enough that it's like, it's a four and a half. We have our suggestions and and improvements, which is what makes it a four or five. Characters liked them, but there were some gaps. And it, you know, it's a full knockdown from a five to a four. And then the world... The world is interesting. The world is nice. The world's good. But could have been a little bit more robust. Honestly, would have read another 10 chapters, you know, and yeah. think there was room for it. In, and it still would have left you longing for more, like good books should, uh, but wasn't. So If there was a couple more adventures with Fertility and Adam and Tender using the houses that are being hauled across the highway, the mm-hmm. pre-built, prefab houses, if there was somewhere else they had to go, and the house thing got busted, and they had to do something else. I would have liked to be with them for a little longer. And again, same minimalistic writing, same absurdist kind of thing, where I don't get enough information except what's in my head to create a story. I love that kind of stuff. But if there was a little bit more, I'd have liked it too. But that just proves the fact that Palinuk did a good job with this book. It lured me in. One of the things I said in the beginning was it lured me into the story right away. I wanted to spend more and more time with these characters because I found them fascinating. Yeah. Well, maybe there will be a book, too, where Tender doesn't actually kill himself because they did leave it kind of ambiguous. I doubt it. Palinuk doesn't seem like the kind of guy to write follow-ups because I think people wanted a follow-up to Fight Club as well. But it really, it's not his style. Yeah, and I don't want a follow-up. I'm happy not knowing whether Tender is dead or living with the Aborigines and the in the backwoods, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, of Australia. I think he's dead, because how else? He's not a pilot, and the pilot told him, the last engine burns out, you will eventually just fall out of the sky. Yeah, well, you, you there's ways to reduce your crash. Does he know that, though? <laughs> Pull up on the yoke. Does Tender know that, though? It says that he the pilot gave him that information. It's like, mm-hmm. once, both, once all the engines uh, burn out, you are going to start going down, but the way that you go back up is you pull up. You either go down or you go up, and that's the way to glide. So it's also not like, yeah, it might be aeronautics, but or sorry, aer- aerodynamics, but it's not rocket science, technically. Yep, yep. So anyway, this is, uh, this is Survivor Part 1. Next time we're going to talk to someone who's a diehard Palinuk fan, and I'm looking forward to that getting some behind-the-scenes information on some of his other books, and Slava's first invited guest, which will be fun. And we'll see if, in this episode, Jonathan and my guest will gang up on me, like his friends and I have on Jonathan. Probably not. Just because you think it's just your lot in life to be uh, (laughs) ganged up on? Uh, No, because I want you to feel guilty about it. Ah, okay. So and and my my friend is uh, is a very sweet person. She probably wouldn't gang up on either of us. There it is. Well, folks, before we go, make sure you smash that subscribe button, and you never miss out on a side quest.